Welcome to episode 37 of Energy Radio. Today is a special treat. Uh, we have Trevor Venerda of Husky Injection Molding with us today. And um, Trevor and I have known each other for a while. And so today's conversation is going to be really all around energy management, um, particularly at the facility level. Trevor brings a lot of experience. And uh, I know for our listeners charged with bringing down energy use and energy cost, uh, this is going to be uh, packed full of good concepts and ideas and, and projects as well. So Trevor, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for having me. We, we, I look forward to doing this. We, we teed this up when we ran into each other uh, at the airport uh, back when all of us used to still travel. So uh, it's a very different world, but uh, it's fun to have you. Um, maybe uh, as we get started, kind of tee us up with your kind of arc to get to this point in terms of your maybe your studies and your career, and, and then we'll uh, jump into the discussion. Sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy to think I've actually been in the workforce for uh, 12 years now. I graduated McMaster 2008, I think it was May 2008. Um, and then uh, I had already done a co-op at Husky Injection Molding Systems. Uh, and then I returned there as a full-time employee May 2008. Uh, here's where I started my kind of energy uh, path. Uh, I was tasked to look at how the injection molding machine uh, their machine manufacturer and the global uh, leader and supplier for injection molding equipment and understand how does the injection molding system use energy and how do we reduce energy on the machine level, um, which was very interesting to dive into. But what we really quickly learned about is that it's not just the machine. If the machine dictates, you know, 50 degree Fahrenheit, cooling water versus 60 degree Fahrenheit, that impacts the facility and how the facility is designed. And this is what really led me into that bigger uh, facilities concept, understanding chillers, pumps, and how what we do on a machine side ultimately impacts a customer in Dubai, whether they can run free cooling or chilling on cooling hydraulics. So um, I was with Husky in the R&D side focusing on, on reducing energy on the machine till 2012, uh, where I left to pursue a career at Enbridge in the DSM side, uh, focusing strictly then just on energy and helping industrial customers uh, reduce their natural gas consumption. And I think that, that's where we first met, right? Was it was in the Enbridge days? Yeah. Which, which, is yes, ironic, which is ironic because I think we were at Mac at the same time, but I think you were part of the cool kids and I was the nerdy kids in the old library basement or something. I didn't know you were a Mac grad. That's great. Yeah. yeah I, I'm, an um, o, I'm an 09 um, uh, Mac engine management grad. So. Um, okay. Yeah. But you, you were, you were a red suit, I think, right? I was not a red suit. Oh, okay. Um, but, but I hung out with some red suits. Okay. We've been offset a little bit because uh, I did the the 18 month or 16 month co-op. So okay. technically, I should have graduated in 2007. So we wouldn't have too much okay. overlap there. But uh, yeah, good to know. Yeah. Go yeah. Mac, go. Neat, neat. So so, I, so so you head to you head to Enbridge and you you help them on the DSM, the demand side management side. Yeah, great team at Enbridge. Uh, great leadership there. Got to learn a lot. Cut my teeth in the sort of DSM sector, the regulatory side, uh, the regulated monopoly world, uh, rate structures. Then I shifted over to what was PowerStream at that time, which later became Electra. Same uh, type of role, but focusing on electricity production, the, the CDM side. 
this was focused at a lot of the plastics customers. So mm -hmm. it was a good fit with my Husky background. Um, again, great leadership, great team. Uh, and then uh, the Ford government uh, shifted to reducing or changing, the ministry changed CDM. At the same time, an opportunity had opened up at Husky, uh, which was a broader scope of sustainability. So energy is one piece, but it's more focused on the challenges with plastics as waste and looking at recycling, how do we change the machines to go more into recycled content? So I joined Husky again in September uh, 2018. So just coming up on two years. Cool, cool. As a, and that's a global role too, which is uh, very exciting. I've been to a few different parts of the world and uh, it's been a lot of travel, but until, uh, and like I said, that's how we ran into each other until recently. So it's been nice actually to be home with the kids uh, with that. So yeah, that's how I hear cool. Today. Yeah, that's great. And and what's what's interesting as I listen is you've you've kind of in those first three kind of positions, you're you're approaching this energy management side from you know three you know unique um, vantage points, which I think position you well, you know, to help us in today's conversation. You know, first you start as kind of the you know the the equipment manufacturer, and then you're from a natural gas vantage point. Um, and then you're from the electricity vantage point. But I think in every case, you're from the outside looking into the facility with a bit of a different lens. Uh, but you were, am I right? I know for sure in the electricity and the gas side, but on the Husky side in your first iteration, you're kind of always looking into the facility and looking at opportunities as a bit of an outsider. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and even on the machine side, I'm viewing the machine as an outsider. I wasn't part of designing it, and it was, you know, really, I, I knew about the process, but I didn't know how the different aspects of the machine use energy. So it's it's the same idea and the approach I take, uh, which I did learn here at Husky, a very systematic uh, approach and always sticking with science, uh, staying away from the, the snake oil and, and, and using the engineering background we have. Um, the, that toolbox we were given at Mac uh, to take that systematic approach, it, it seems to serve, and that was the one thing I thought we could chat about today, it seems to be independent of whether it's gas, whether it's electricity, whether it's machine, whether it's baking cookies, uh, making whatever widget, that approach and that style I think has been uh, successful for me, even in the sustainability and approaching recycled plastics. Well, why don't we start there? I mean, is that a... that kind of framework that you talk about, that you reference, is that something you can kind of walk us through and maybe then we can unpack it in a bit more detail? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to, that'd be great. So really it's, when when I walk up to a facility, I want to understand what do they do? What What is the function? Not necessarily what machines or what motors, but what are we trying to accomplish? And if we look at a facility through this lens, it helps us take a step back and say, what am I trying to do versus how I'm doing it today, what technology, whether it's pneumatic or steam, and how much theoretical energy should it take to help us identify waste in the process. And I think this, this view of understanding the function allows you to open up bigger ideas than just you know a better chiller or a better air compressor. Uh, there's other ways that you can you can zoom out uh, and, and think more on the functional level. Hmm. So if I understand how you're going to, what you're trying to accomplish, the next step we're going to do is 
in that process, what does it look like if we think of a pie chart? What are the big energy users? I'm a, I'm a big fan of the 80-20. Um, so let's let's account for about 80% that we can. And I think just to jump back to the the function side, I think one of the challenging parts with uh, the gas lines or the breakers, they may not be split as the functions are split how it's designed. So that makes it a little bit more challenging. But if you look at based on your functions, what you're trying to do, how much energy each of these sub-functions, if you can come up with that rough pie chart, that allows us to prioritize. You don't want to spend, especially you know, the majority of energy managers or maintenance managers, this is a side job to them. I, you're more of a nuisance. They've been tasked cut energy on top of the daily role, which adds a, a, a interesting dynamic to the relationship. So the more value you can bring as a DSM or a CDM or an energy manager and make their job easier, um, if not more difficult, the more welcome you'll be in the facility. So we're going to identify this pie chart to allow us to prioritize, because I've seen this before, even when we were looking on an injection molding machine, people saw that the motions of the machine, certain ones were very, very fast. Mm. And people always equate speed with energy, just like they always equate temperature with energy. You can have high temperature or high speed, but if it's a very light thing you're moving, a carbon fiber robot, actually uses very little energy, mm. but it's it's how the brain perceives it. And and we want to remove the perception and stick with the science. So when we identify those top hitters, we're going to prioritize. Let's look at some of those big guys first. Don't waste your time on little guys unless they're quick, easy, you're already looking at it. I also think talking to the facility about challenges they have. Some of the best projects we've ever done overlap when they have a production issue, if you can align production cost savings with energy savings. So I have to add cycle time or change production because I can't get cooling water to where I want it. And at the same time, you see an opportunity for an upgraded cooling system, you're going to have more levels to your business case to make it a more successful project. So spending some time with the customer, understanding the functions, the challenges, what are they trying to do, Getting that breakdown, you've laid a great foundation to now start targeting opportunities. And we're gonna do that by looking at those top headers. So one of the things I said was sticking with the science and the process. If I look at the process, let's say we're trying to heat milk for a food processing facility. The function, today they may do it with steam or electricity, but the function is to raise milk from let's say five degrees C up to 150 degrees C. Right there, we can calculate theoretically how much energy that takes. So if you know roughly how much you're using today, and you know theoretically what it could should take, the difference could be waste. It can be inefficiencies in due to the technology. For example, if you have an old boiler and your steam efficiency is 65%, that can help you identify the waste. But the point is, Matt, is don't spend time on something where there isn't much waste. So melting plastic, for example, everybody says, look at the injection molding machine. It uses a ton of energy. Well, yeah, because it takes a lot of energy to melt plastic. You can't save something that theoretically needs to be put in. You can calculate how much it takes to boil water, and you can calculate how much it takes. And this isn't always so simple, 
but even think of HVAC and straight uh, metrics. This all plays into it. The more you put the science to it, the more you can easily identify waste and also not be misled by snake oil salesmen who have these fancy magnets that you put on the gas pipe or some other technology that'll cut 10%. Well, if there isn't 10% to be saved, there's, and you're at a, a high efficiency boiler, then that's not gonna happen. So if you understand what you're trying to do, even think of lighting. Uh, I like to use this example because I had the opportunity to teach at Seneca. Hmm. Um, the one cohort uh, through IESO and Seneca, they did this energy manager program uh, for continuing education. And so I, I got to teach the first cohort. I think I did five or six out of the 10 and, and did the, the, uh, um, the final exam. And the point being that we talked about lighting. So let's think of lighting. Nine times out of 10, the guy's gonna say, I have eight lights, I'm gonna replace them. They're T5HOs, I'm gonna replace them with LEDs. Well, let's step back. Why are we lighting? How much light do you actually need in certain areas? And when do I need that lighting? When we take that level of approach of why and asking why a few times, you can uncover more opportunity. So I did this exercise with the students where we just did a straight lighting, lighting swap. And then we did one where we looked at what are the required foot candles? If you're a food industry, a certain areas inspection, you have published light levels you need. Then there's recommended light levels. Let's go in and actually measure our light levels. What do we need to have? And then do a proper lighting design. Don't just do the straight retrofit because it's convenient. Because that's really, I'm gonna hit, I'm gonna get more energy savings through this approach and you're likely to increase employee comfort. So it's really that approach of understanding what do we need to do? How much opportunity is there? If it's, for example, like the heating one, because you can't save what you need to put in anyways. And that allows you to start setting up opportunities for your different projects. So, so you, do I, your, your, your methodology is kind of three parts. If I, if I was listening properly, one is, you know, first understand what do they do? What functionally do they need to do? Number two is look at this pie chart to identify kind of the big energy hogs, the big energy users. Um, and then three, you know, understand some of the challenges of the facility. Are those kind of the big three buckets of your strategy, Trevor? Yeah, I think if you stick with that pie chart, I want to take those heavy hitters from the pie chart and I want to understand on each of those processes. Let's say it's lighting is one of those big pies um, because it's just a warehouse and functionally they just have to store stuff. Or let's say it's, we talked about the milk example, it's, it's pasteurization, it's one of those big chunks. Let's break those down into their, you know, what is what do I need and how much waste is there? And that that's gonna allow us to start speculating how much, not speculating, calculating and putting together how much opportunity each of these functions actually have. So so it, you know, I'm envisioning someone who's charged with, you know, even energy management across a, a processing facility of some type, you know, there's a there's a chance that they're just, you know, they're new in the role, they're just greatly overwhelmed by, you know, everything that's in front of them. There's, you know, the lights are always on, they're sweeping the floor with air with compressed air, there's steam pissing out all over the place, you know, um, you know, stuff we've all seen, right? And is it your methodology, and I, I think I kind of forgot the, the waste and the calculation piece in that. So those three or four steps that you have, 
is it fair to say that you can approach that from a macro kind of um, facility level, but then once you get this pie chart, can you can you redo that? At, like if you carve out a specific process, those four steps, can you redo that kind of at a at a component level as well? Does that same methodology yep. apply there? You you know if you think of an engineering, your control volume or the where you want to look at. You're going to start at that macro level, and I think that's a great point. A lot of guys are overwhelmed, and that's what even me. You walk into a facility that you <clears throat> you know nothing about milk pasteurization, or you know nothing about paper making, and there's just machines and motors, and and you don't even know, and steam pissing there, whatever. You don't know where to start. But by doing this, you can systematically find those high hitters. So starting macro, and then yeah, you can repeat that analysis on each subcomponent. Even think of compressed air. When you look at your compressed air system, start with what are you trying to do? Why am I using compressed air? If you reduce the users first, and, and Steve Dixon had taught this to me way, before, way back, um, you kind of energy management, when you think of that, uh, that, that block, you're going to work backwards. Why am I using compressed air? How am I using compressed air? When am I using compressed air? Then once you have your users dealt with, then you would move into the piping, and then you would move back to the compressor. And but it, you have it exactly right. You can replace that on each process, on each subsystem. Why am I doing chilling? Why am I running chilled water? What is the efficiency? What is the losses? What am I? Because theoretically, you know best in class chiller. Uh, COP and you know your flow rates and your delta T's. You can calculate how much waste there is in the system. Yeah, you actually want to uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say running with that compressed air system. I guess the one thing that we constantly see is those energy managers who are also overwhelmed and confused. Not necessarily confused, but but don't know where to start. They also have nonstop sales guys knocking on the door. I want to sell you a new compressor. Yeah. Well, hold on a second. The compressor should be like point the fourth thing I work on, right? We're going to talk, if you stick with that, we're going to do the users. And maybe some of those users through new technology can actually be their ones. There's, there's programs where you're replacing pneumatic tools with electric tools. I was, uh, at the end of my role, I was really looking at diaphragm pumps because there's electric versions of diaphragm pumps now. So what used to be pneumatic because it was cheap and easy, now, if there's a CDM program that's going to pay for 50% of the replacement or 25%, the business case could be there to convert your work principle. Because what I'm trying to do is pump fluid. I don't necessarily need to use compressed air here. Once you've reduced your users, then you can optimize the piping network and the leaks. And then you look at the generation side. And it's even, think of a whole facility, you work on your end users, and then you work towards the generation, and your last piece could be even how you source electricity, et cetera. It's so that there's so much wisdom to that, and and I know you know our founder Martin has always had that approach too, and he learned it early on. You start at the point of use, you work backwards through distribution back to generation, and you know I remember a story early in my career where I was calling on a a balloon manufacturing facility in Hamilton, and. Uh, I went. I got called in by the local at the time Horizon rep, and I think the the owner wanted Cogen. They, it was a small project, but they wanted Cogen, 
Um, but, and we did a nice tour and, and they would have been a nice, you know, co-gen application, but the, 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 the guy who was my senior at horizon, uh, he pulls me out after he says, you know, they might be, you know, a co-gen application, but, uh, there's way more you know, energy management point of use distribution projects that there's a lot of work to do on that side before you get to cogen. But often yeah. we think of, you know, new air compressors, new boilers, new cogen. That's the sexy stuff. Right. Um, and so sometimes we can get excited about that generation stuff when we should be focused on, you know, point of use uh, first. So there's a lot of um, a lot of wisdom in that on that topic. How do you, you mentioned a little bit the pivot between compressed air and electricity. Um, you know, there's other, op, you know, I, I know in the um, blow molding space, uh, we did some work with Pepsi and, and others over the years, and they were looking at electricity versus natural gas. Like what, how do you look at that evaluation? And then I guess to add a layer to it is, are you also applying kind of a carbon footprint to that evaluation? Like, how do you kind of look at that almost fuel switching or, or, you know, that type of approach? I think it's, we started with what are the, um, understanding the challenges of the customer, but also what are their goals? What are, what are their targets? Because for example, if it's an auto manufacturer, it might just come down to dollars. If you're a tier two supplier, Every year you're cutting energy, and really he doesn't want to cut energy. He needs to cut dollars. So finding the metrics that the customer needs to sell the project. So um, if we think about all those steps we took to start identifying opportunities, now you're going to take those opportunities and you're going to have to add the right business case to each one. So let's say it is finally we're at a new chiller or a new way of <clears throat> a new diaphragm pump or something of this nature, you got to stick with the terminology and the language and the goals of the customer. Mm. So if it is, it, it Pepsi has strong carbon footprint targets. An auto manufacturer has huge dollar savings. And then the best one is if you can find production efficiency. So I can reduce your energy and I can, or reduce your, whatever KPI you're working on carbon, and I can increase production. Now I'm, I'm really talking the customer's language. And I think that's the, we call them like, like secondary non-energy benefits. And these, this, these are the projects that are, are the easiest to push through. So maintenance issues, same thing. If you can find a way, I can lower your energy and I can reduce downtime and lowering your energy impacts your carbon footprint. And I noticed, uh, Mr. Customer, on your website that your sustainability goals include a 20% carbon footprint reduction. All three of those together make a nice, beautiful case for him to give to his decision makers. Yeah, and I, what I like about your third or fourth point there about understanding the challenges of, of, of the facility and, and getting to know, I think, you know, the people that are there you know, as energy, you know, this is energy, the energy radio podcast. So we're always going to approach these issues from an energy perspective. But to your point, you know, maybe there's even a safety benefit, right? But until we get to know the facility and their challenges and their drivers, we, we have to be engaging in those conversations and engaging with those individuals. And, you know, maybe the 
VP of engineering, she has targets that, you know, are, are sustainability or are safety driven, right? And until we're engaging in that dialogue, we can't look at those secondary, you know, non-energy benefits. But but to your point, exactly. that's often the way these projects get pushed over the finish line is because of their non-energy benefits. Um, yep. And, and if we started with step one, understanding what the facility does, if you understand what they're trying to accomplish, that means the widgets, the, the market, the challenges of operating in Ontario or whatever jurisdiction, that's that's all comprehensive. The more we understand about what they're, or when you're trying to understand what they do as a business, you're gonna get closer to that terminology right off the hop and make it easier for, for you and your, your partner there in the facility to articulate the value of the project in the right language for them. Yeah, that language piece is so important. Like, you know, I'll never forget you know, the Campbell Soup project. You know, they had done a lot of work on the energy management side. You know, Doug Ditburner and those folks, they'd done a lot of great stuff. Um, and I'll never forget, we would walk the halls and they had these posters of Anukshuks and with the Campbell's logo. And, uh, and they had a number at the bottom. And uh, I forget what the number was. It's not important. But I asked one time, you know, what? what is you know that number and they said well that's our target for our conversion cost of a case of soup and so then we started to talk about well, where are you now uh, and so then whenever we were phrasing um the the benefits of cogen we we asked them for the data so that we could present the cogen case uh, in terms of how it would impact their move from today towards that target um and so that as it went up the senior food chain these guys could say, hey, you know, this is going to move the needle um, towards our, you know, dollars per case of soup. Um, and so it didn't matter to them that it was a, you know, $15 million project or whatever it was and this much savings. What mattered was how many cents or dollars are you taking out of a case of soup, right? That's really what. Yeah, and that, that's exactly like the more you understand on how the business is measured, what their goals are, then you can really change how you're looking at it if it's, dollars per widget. Right now, uh, in a lot of the plastics industry, you talk about a conversion cost to, to take the raw pellet and turn it into a shape. So then you get into so many cents or dollars per part or per thousand parts. And if you can frame it in their language, like you guys did there, then all of a sudden you you also get this, this added level of trust. Mm. Not only are you talking the same language, but this guy's taking the time to understand what I do and what's important to me, right? Selling is about uh, about trust and, and and listening. And if you just go in there with the uh, called the old Trevor bowl in a china shop, you need to replace your chiller because it's old. Versus, hey, did you know that through replacing the chiller, we can actually increase uptime, which is going to uh, end to cut your overall uh, kilowatt hours per kilo processed by X amount and really dollars per kilo process, that then you get more buy-in and that language will carry you up. You're no longer talking to just the maintenance manager. You might see the C-suite or executive level who really are making those decisions. Let's talk a bit more about the human side of this. Uh, not so much in terms of going up and, and getting projects approved and, and, and talking the language, but I think when we talk about energy management, behavior on the shop floor, you know, has a big impact. Uh, talk to me about what you've seen work, what's wh where you've seen challenges. Talk to me about 
the behavioral aspect because we're not, you know, every plant, no matter how automated it is, there's still, you know, boots on the ground. Talk to us a bit about that aspect of energy management. Yeah, I'd say this is probably maybe more of a weakness of mine because if we think about our 80-20, where we started from, how much does the human activity impact that 80-20? You know, I see a lot of effort put towards, hey, please, everywhere, please shut off the light when you leave the building. Well, if lighting represents 0.5% of your total energy usage, how much money did you just spend on the education? And every Ontario business or every manufacturing business is resource short. So it took somebody 10 hours to design and distribute those pamphlets. Was that the right decision? That aside, education and engagement with your employees is critical. Having people feel part of the solution and showing them about what you're doing, because if you cut costs without cutting their wage, you are turning that into job security mm. for Canadians. One of the things we care about the most is economics, job security, healthcare. So if you can sit there and say, listen, by helping us and participating and providing your feedback, not only are you helping the company save money, which some people say, well, that means you just make more profit, but it also ensures that the jobs that you're competing, that may, that they may be competing for versus overseas or cheaper labor, get more, have more chances of sticking around. So it can, I think education and value, and again, it's talking the language of what's important to the employee. If, you know, every year I hear about an auto manufacturing plant in Ontario, they must cut X amount of cost, otherwise they're out the next program. So that gives them four years to cut whatever, 15% or 20%. And if the last thing people want to hear is cost cutting, because they think it's them. Well, hold on a second. Here's this whole other game where we're going to do this. This is our approach. So I'm a big believer of clear uh, communication and clear engagement. But I would say in a perfect world, yes. But more importantly is delivering that bottom line. If Especially, let's say you're an energy manager and you have to deliver results. That's if that's really what's going to keep the plant there. If communication comes second, and, and this may rub some listeners the wrong way, again, sticking with that 80-20 and why am I here, what am I doing, how am I going to drive the most value for that customer? Yeah, and I 100% agree with you. Yeah, we have to be pragmatic, and that 80-20 is so important. And, you know, I, I think at some point, We'll, we'll figure out the 80 and then we'll only have, you know, hopefully we'll only have the 20 left. So we will have to, you know, figure out how to, how to incent, you know, incentivize or motivate that behavior. And I, I love what you did there in terms of, you know, drawing the, the, the line between behavior on the shop floor as it relates to managing energy and job security. And, and, and I think if you can articulate it in a way that people understand and, and those people are very smart, they will understand. We pull out, you know, this much energy. We're that much more competitive. We get that next line of production. We're still making product two, three, four years from now. Um, and so, you know, that may not be a compelling story to them, but maybe to their husband at home or their kids at home, that'll be a pretty compelling story, right? So, um, let, let, well, let you can cut cut costs with energy, but they can also cut costs with people. And that's really what we want to avoid. We want to keep more hardworking Ontarians employed. And energy management is a great way 
with the price of energy in the province that we can all kind of help help keep competitiveness. And that was the one of the most satisfying things of the Enbridge and Electra roles is if I helped customers save energy, that helps the province be uh, more successful and, and keeps jobs in Ontario. Totally. Let's um, pivot a little bit back to um, some more, you know, the, the technical and the, the data aspects of things with respect to, you know, you mentioned earlier, let's remove the perception and focus on the science. And, you know, one of the ways to do that is to have good data. Talk to me about, you know, the importance of, you know, metering and submetering. It's often talked about in these circles. Uh, is it blown out of proportion? Is it, you know, always, you know, good money? Like, what's your philosophy as it relates to, you know, getting the data and, and handling the data and metering? I think you, it's really tough to do this approach with any form of crude metering, but I'd say it, it, I think it's critical. Uh, it, the, uh, there's a famous analogy in the industry, like how would you even go about saving your finances if you didn't first look at where you spent, right? If you want to cut your spending by 20%, you just don't randomly pick things. You're going to dig into where you spent. So why wouldn't you carry that philosophy over to energy management? Mm -hmm. I think people, and especially in this industry, we really struggle to make business case for energy management. And that, that becomes, you know, because it's not cheap to wire a facility. And I know there's great technologies with Bluetooth and things that, that are making it cheaper. But it's not that, again, it's probably more of a business case challenge. But I, I'm a strong believer in the data, and especially if you want to keep things on track. Having the right QSIM analysis or having the right KPIs, because once we've, we've, we've taken – Let's say we've improved our compressed air system because we looked at the end users, we looked at the um, we looked at the piping network, the leaks, and then we went to a VFD solution or a solution that better met our profile, which is the when we use the the energy. Now, if you want to keep that optimized, it's all about measuring and maintaining. And so, if you can't keep on top of the leaks and things of this nature, don't even know when they're coming, this becomes a big challenge. So I'm, I'm a strong believer in, in the data management. It's just not a simple thing always to make the, the case. But one of the things you can always do is say, like if I think of steam measurement or if you think of compressed air, how many leaks would it take to to pay back that, that energy, if it's a specific to that compressor or, or meter for the compressor, how much, because it, it's probably not a lot of mm -hmm. leaks. I think it gets tougher when you look at wiring every breaker in the whole panel. So again, your 80-20 rule could help you have a more strategic, you know, this is my bare minimum energy management, here's my Christmas list or wish list energy management. So being strategic again, it's all about that systematic strategic approach. Well, and, and what's interesting is you mentioned earlier this notion of trust. And so whether it's, you know, somebody from the outside coming in or an energy manager, you know, really trying to do uh, her or his best kind of internally, I think, you know, what that kind of outside in kind of 80-20 approach does is if you focus on the big stuff and you get some early wins, I think that that helps establish the trust either from an outside advisor or internally between the energy manager and the plant manager, let's say, where you know, if you put in a steam meter, if you get that 
traction to do that and that drives some savings, then you've built up some pedigree and some political capital to, to then go to that next level of scrutiny. You can say to the, 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 the folks that have to spend the money, hey, we, we, we did it already. We've, we've shown this metering things works. Let, now let's take it to the next level, right? And, and so there's almost that need to, to get some, to tackle those low hanging fruit and get some quick wins so that you know so and so can can develop you know the trust internally to keep the momentum going right because this is a, this is a long term you know energy management's not a you know quick get in get out it's it's a long term you know effort for these facilities right yeah i i totally agree find some quick wins buy your own freedom right show your value and if you can somehow create a deal where your budget is linked to your savings or something or i often said they I tried going out on my own a little bit just as a side, but I, I, I'm a strong believer that if you could just have a percentage of the savings, that's also going to guide the right um, uh, project selection. Uh, but it, it's totally uh, the right approach where you get some quick wins. And that's the only caveat to my 80-20 is let's say within that 80-20, there's a 5 or a 10 percenter, or there's a super fast, no-brainer win that could buy you the tools that need you to attack the 80 stronger. It's it's not a mandatory for the listeners. You do not touch the 20. If it's a no-brainer, quick swap, like uh, uh, LED tubes, something like that, that can then buy you a little bit of trust and some time, you know, especially if you're on timelines. I You're totally right, Matt, that this is, you, you gotta get the quick wins. And then if you can consistently show value, you'll get more freedom. And, and I think this isn't just energy or natural gas or, or the thermal energy, but if you think about where um, the sustainability strategies are going for companies, it's gonna be a continuous monitoring of sustainability, which is gonna be all, you're gonna look at solid waste monitoring, you're gonna look at water monitoring, um, companies that now have to report on GHG. So, so this becomes only one segment. And once you've shown that you can do this on the energy side, you can take that same approach to, to a wider angle and, and really drive more value. Yeah. And I think the other thing too is, you know, if you can back to, you know, on the, on the metering thing and showing success, I, I think if we don't meter and we don't like, we, we, if we just talk to people about how important their behavior is, but we don't show them kind of a scoreboard that says, Hey, look, you did this and now you're seeing, you know, this line on the screen is going down. Like the other value of metering is not only to show people up the food chain that, you know, our projects are, are paying for themselves. But I think people want to they want to win. They want to succeed. They want to see their behaviors contribute to something bigger. And so you know, being able to meter, being able to show on, you know, big screens, you know, what the KPIs are. You know, that also allows the people who are, you know, doing the work to uh, to, to really see their impact uh, on the bottom line. You know, try to connect those dots back to them, right? For sure. Like people feed off of the, the reward and the gratification. Could you imagine dieting but not being able to step on the scale or going to the gym and you don't, you know, right? Like you need that feedback loop. That's a huge piece. Yeah. Again, I think um, just throwing a random screen with a KPI that your employees don't care about. Maybe you got to put it in terms of how many uh, FTEs we've saved uh, or something of that nature. Come up with a metric that people care about because I think there's a lot of communication is is finding value in what the other or 
what the other person values. And and so, you know, I, if you just put a random thing up there that says 792 kilowatt hours, and the next day it says 808 kilowatt hours, well, how many people on your floor know what a kilowatt hour? Right. What, what do they even care? Like to, to them, some people just go in, it's a nine to five, it's a means to an end. There's other people who are more engaged. You have the full spectrum, likely, in the, a lot of facilities. So trying to, again, talk the right language. Where um, where have you seen, this is another uh, kind of bunny trail, but where have you seen government incentives work well? Like what's the role of incentivizing energy management in the right direction? Cool. Um, I, I think... It, one of the great things that came from the CDM and DSM programs is that you, we showed people the value of energy savings to their business. And, and a lot of guys, I think now, if it, when they found the program too complicated or if the program were to disappear, we've at least started a culture that there's value in bringing down your resource costs. There's value to paying attention to it. And it's not, it, it can bring a wide range of other things. So I think, uh, government um, stimulus is a catalyst, and it's finding that sweet spot, right, where, you know, if the business case is at 0.8 years, do we really need to bring it down to 0.4, or should they be doing it anyways? But at least now we got that through that. We got that business case in front of them. We have senior management. There's a lot of, like, energy management and sustainability are now on a lot of corporate agendas or the majority of corporate agendas. So I think it helps to, to spur that. Um, the challenge is how do we make it the most cost-effective program? Because there's certainly the challenges uh, I've heard from customers. Well, hold on. If I look at my GA and the percentage of CDM that GA is and that I've paid over 15 years and this is my first project or 10 years, whatever it is, uh, I had one customer say, that's only the incentive you're giving me is one-tenth of that. And it's, uh, it's so, it, again, it's cost-effectiveness of the program, but I think it's it's stimulus, catalyst, and then finding the way to let this continue on its own in a cost-effective manner. And I think one of the ways that it, it can continue on its own in a, in a cost-effective manner is, you know, generational change, right? So in Ontario, we've had the Save on Energy program now for a long time, you know, arguably 10, 11, 12 years. So, you know, we have a whole generation of, you know, new engineers and new facility, you know, uh, personnel our age and younger who, who don't know any different, right? They don't, they don't know a world where energy was, you know, cheap and um, you didn't care that people swept the floor with compressed air, right? They, they're, um, it, this is the new normal. Uh, we talk about new normal as it relates to COVID, but I think in the energy management space, my hope is that because the industry has been driven by incentives and it's, it's, it's normalized this discipline and rigor of, you know, energy management, it's like what safety was you know prior to that right you know we would never think about you know not wearing a vest or not wearing you know hard hats or not tying off um and i think hopefully we would never think about you know doing a project or or you know looking at a facility without looking at energy management and the next thing probably will be you know we would never you know 
30 years from now and when, when you and I are, are old and retired, people will say we'd never do something without thinking about the carbon impact, right? You know, that, that's good. Yeah, yeah, there'll be some sort of, so what is the impact to the planet? How much solid waste is this going to generate? I think we, we've got that column added on the project evaluation sheet. You've got that goal set with uh, a lot of corp corporate strategies and, and now it's growing in to bigger things like the carbon footprint. So I, I totally agree with you. I think it's uh, the the purpose of incentives and in getting that that behavioral or mind shift done. Uh, I think a lot of it has happened. What we don't want to see, though, ever is is that the return back to the the old normal. Yeah, for sure. On the, this topic of sustainability, I mean, it's it's a buzzword. Um, I guess a two-part question. One is, you know, what does that mean to you? And then the second question is, you know, what's the role of, you know, the corporate leadership uh, in terms of driving that forward? And, and we can unpack that a bit for a bit. So that, those are kind of open-ended questions. But let's talk a bit kind of as we start to, to land the plane here. Let's talk about sustainability uh, as a broad sense, and then we'll, we'll kind of narrow in. So personally, like sustainability itself, the ability to continue with and, and go on and on. And if you think about mining or pick another industry where you're constantly pulling from a finite resource, there's an end point there. Versus if you think about um, a plastic water bottle like a peat where it can be recycled over and over again, then all of a sudden this this closed loop concept. So if I'm taking from the earth, am I putting back? Am I you know it's to me sustainability and it's that that even stems over into um, the social side and how you interact with your communities and your employees. You know it's it's about being able to continue and and not constantly be chipping away or dwindling away at something. I think it's a a layman's way of putting it. Um, I think the role that senior leadership is, it, it, it's got to be on, and I think it's getting there, it needs to be on every corporate agenda. How, the, if you read a lot of, uh, I do read a lot of sustainability reports, it's not carbon is, is one line item, but it's how am I sourcing my stuff? What happens to my products when they end? That complete cradle to grave or what, in the circular economy, cradle to cradle approach. What about my people? You know, how do I ensure? You, you talked about uh, us getting old and, and retiring. Uh, I'd love to retire tomorrow, but I think I'll have to wait till I get old. Um, how do you have that continuous loop of good employees and talent coming through the door? How do you ensure that they're engaged? So it's it's all aspects: social, economic, environmental. Um, this is, it's got to be part of the strategy. And I think there's enough evidence. There's a lot of reports out there, Harvard Business Review, um, Wood McKenzie, McKinsey, all of, there's, there's so many reports out there that talk about how doing the right things right will, it, at first it seems costly, but if you think about even the people side, What's more costly, keeping the same employee for longer or constantly onboarding, right? People, it, you got to have a bit of a longer term view, which gets very challenging for public 
and firms where it's not where they're only maybe looking two or five years or three years down the road. I think the sustainability agenda's uh, tough, tough there, but it's got to come from the top down. It's got to be ingrained in the culture in all levels of the business if you really want to be sustainable as a business long term. And I think as a society, we and we're we're getting pretty philosophical here, but I think as a society, we need you know corporate leadership because you know we're we're not it's our our political environment is becoming too you know kind of binary too political you know and and I think early on we saw you know government leadership on some of this stuff, but I think now we're seeing you know the government's kind of you know depending on who's in power go forward go backwards go forward go backwards, and now we're seeing these, you know, the corporate leadership kind of moving ahead of that and saying, well, regardless of what the requirements are from a provincial level or a state level or a federal level, we are going to do this. And, you know, we are going to take action and, and provide leadership. And that's exciting to me. I think that's 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 where, you know, we need to be. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that, you know, our team and, and, and you guys and we all can play a small part in that. Right. It's exciting. I, I totally agree with you. I think that when if it's government stimulus or, or government policy led, sometimes you can run in a situation where it's too short sighted. And when it's done by an industry led, corporate led like that, they're going to find a way to do it that it's sustainable. It may not be all the way to the extreme that the government or somebody may have wanted, but it's going to be more likely to be sustainable if it doesn't constantly need the the stimulus package or the the annual tax tax dollars added to it yeah thanks trevor and um thank you so much for joining us and i'm sure we'll run into each other uh, at an airport uh, somewhere somewhere soon uh, but uh thanks again for joining us and thank you for everybody for listening thank you to our, our man behind the glass mark charbonneau and uh and our executive producer lisa barber until next time um make sure you're looking at that control volume and uh, looking at uh, the big energy users and um, moving from perception to focusing on science. Thanks so much. Thank